I think 2023 will be a very interesting ride and I'm not sure people are sufficiently aware of the risks of the uncertainty because we're confronted with something we haven't seen before. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. On the eve of the annual meeting in Davos, we're looking at the forum's annual Global Risks Report to find out what humanity sees as the biggest risks we all face. And it's also raised the specter of geopolitical confrontations and maybe even nuclear warfare in Europe, which we haven't had to consider for years. We talked to two of the people behind the Global Risks Report who explain why this is the era of the poly crisis. We're coming out of an area of almost unnatural stability that we saw for maybe 15, 20 years. Because if you look at human history, what we experience today seems not so out of the norm. When stability is something that was not observed in history for very long periods of time. War, pandemics, climate change, inflation. What are the risks and how should we face them? We're facing numerous interlinked crises. We need to come together to solve these challenges. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum. And with this look at the Global Risks Report 2023. Improve collaboration. That would be my hope. This is Radio Davos. As 2023 begins, the world is facing a set of risks that feel both wholly new and eerily familiar. I'm reading from the executive summary of the Global Risks Report 2023, the result of a huge annual survey conducted by the World Economic Forum in collaboration with Marsh McLennan and Zurich Insurance Group. I'll carry on quoting it. We've seen a return of older risks, inflation, cost of living crises, trade wars, capital outflows from emerging markets, widespread social unrest, geopolitical confrontation and the spectre of nuclear warfare, which few of this generation's business leaders and public policymakers have experienced. The Global Risks Report is a fascinating read. It looks at short-term and long-term perceptions. And in the longer term, or the medium term, the threat posed by climate change is the top risk on a 10-year time horizon. But in the short term, worries about natural disasters and extreme weather fall into second place, pushed off the top spot by the cost of living crisis. You can find the report at wef.ch slash GRR2023. That's for the Global Risks Report. It's required reading ahead of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, which is just days away as I record this. And that's where figures from government, business, academia and civil society will come together to discuss the world's most pressing issues. For this episode of Radio Davos, my colleague Gail Markovitz linked up with two of the people involved in creating the Global Risks Report, Carolina Clint, Managing Director at Marsh, and Peter Geiger, Group Chief Risk Officer at Zurich Insurance Group, who had plenty to say about the poly crises the world faces and how we might face them. Here's Gail. So, Carolina, in some ways, the top current risks this year feel like a bit of a step backwards to the basics of solving food, energy and inflation and a cost of living crisis. How did we get here and how can we move forward? You know, I couldn't agree more. And I, I would say that we're looking at something that feels new, but also really familiar, right? So to your point, we're dealing with some of these very basic risks. And, and it is as a result of the compounding political, economic, environmental and society, uh, social events that we've uh, faced over the past two years. 
And the COVID-19 pandemic caused such seismic shifts in employment, healthcare, education, supply chains, digit uh, digitization, and debt burdens. And all of these are significant contributors to us taking this step backwards. And I would say we, we're, we haven't recovered from it yet. So we're seeing new waves of infections. I mean, look what's happening in China now as they're opening up. Um, vaccination rates are slowing down and you know, we still see productivity impacts worldwide. And then, of course, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which also takes place in a region which is vital for agriculture, energy, raw materials, which has also further amplified the impact of these basic risks. And it, it's also created many spillover effects uh, in terms of migration or cyber risk, cyber warfare, so, and it's also raised the specter of geopolitical confrontations and maybe even nuclear warfare in Europe, which we haven't had to consider for years. And then on top of this, the list continues, right? So on top of this, of course, uh, climate change events. So we've been confronted by dozens of billion dollar uh, natural catastrophes over the past year, which has also added pressure on the price of food and other necessities. And in, in turn, uh, has led to social unrest and political turmoil because people are getting desperate. So, seems like quite a daunting challenge, but I do think, with all that said, there is a way forward, but we really cannot just apply quick fixes or short-term solutions. So, today's risks have longer-term impl implications for geopolitical relationships, for economies, for people and the planet. So, I think we need to think more imaginatively and collaboratively about how we approach preparedness and resilience and not be afraid to make those required investments and, and the market structure changes that will strengthen our ability to you know, anticipate and respond to compounding risks and polycrisis in the future. And Peter, in your blog that you've written for the World Economic Forum, you mentioned that uh, the climate mitigation scorecard has gone from green to red. Are we in danger of falling short on tackling climate and biodiversity crises? as we pivot to fix these basics? Indeed, there is now a more and more apparent risk that we are falling short of the required changes. Uh, I mean, we saw some light on the horizon during the COVID crisis, but the bounce back after it uh, has been pretty impressive or depressing as you want. Uh, and uh, kind of the Russian uh, invasion into Ukraine and the following price increase in carbon-based energy has demonstrated again the unwillingness of, of accepting higher carbon prices, which will be required to actually drive the transition uh, over time. It seems like the 2050 target is misunderstood as an invitation to do nothing and avoid the disruptive pains of an adaption process, at least in the short term. I think people have not accepted that the era of cheap carbon energy will come to an end. And it's only a matter of time when it will come to an end. And it's only a question on whether we destroy the planet on the way. In the report, we talk about how policymakers are increasingly confronted by perceived trade-offs between energy, security, affordability and sustainability. What are the tangible actions that we should be taking today in this space? that don't come at a future cost? And, and can you give some, some examples? Well, I mean, we're, we're advocating meaningful carbon pricing. We did that before. It's still true. 
Uh, now, what we see is actually quite the opposite. There is regulatory intervention and subsidies to keep carbon price low, which is totally counterintuitive. Uh, the most important element would be stable regulatory rules and predictable policies. A recent study in Switzerland found that uh, individual rooftop solar panels would offer quite attractive IRRs to investors and individuals. So why didn't people invest when money was actually cheap? The, the most obvious explanation is that <clears throat> they didn't trust regulation to be stable over the long time to require to amortize the investment. So, so policy is really failing on giving people clear signals and developing the trust that is required to make the transition investments uh, over time. Uh, now, stability and trust comes at relatively low cost. Uh, it's just a matter of political will and political predictability, both of which are unfortunately uh, not seen much these days. And do you think... Do you think we will see it? Do you think, do you think we've reached a tipping point? I'm an eternal optimist, so maybe we will. But at the end of the day, we see a lot of people with good intentions. We see people making decisions at the edge of economic considerations because they feel it's the right thing to do. Uh, so there is hope. However, again, one of my concerns is that we put too much pressure on just a small number of actors, like the financial industry. Uh, when everybody says we need green finance, well, that's all well and good, but in the end, it has to arrive at the consumer. Consumer behaviors have to change, and there is no way around that ado adoption. And at one stage, it will be painful. I'm not sure when we will be ready to accept the pain, how many years of continued warming we will need to see. Uh, but ultimately, I think the writing on the wall will be such that we can't avoid the conclusions. Question to, to Carolina. Given that we're entering a new era, essentially, of low growth, low investment, low cooperation, tougher trade-offs for governments, not only in energy, but also broadly across social, environmental, technological and security concerns. What do you think investment in resilience looks like and how can the private sector get involved and what should businesses be thinking about as they move into 2023? Yeah, I think, first of all, trade-offs, even in the best of times, are impossible to avoid. And there will always be limits to the resources that we can spend on resilience. And that's just a, a fact, right? But a resilience mindset uh, with focus on strategies that help position us better for long-term risks and structural changes. That is what can really help, help us reduce uncertainties and, and help us make better decisions about where we need to invest those limited resources. So, and I, I think maybe it would take more time than we have today to talk about what resilience investments should look like for individual risks, such as climate change or healthy work or home environments or cybersecurity and Again, list continues, uh, but there are some frameworks that governments and businesses can work uh, through together and, and you know, individually too that support preparedness and long-term resilience across many intertwined risks. And, and some of the core principles that are also outlined in this year's report um, include strengthening risk identification and foresight, really having that future <laughs> vision of what is on the horizon, uh, and also recalibrating the present value of future risks, um, investing in multi-domain risk preparedness, 
and then also uh, strengthening general preparedness and response cooperation, because there's a lot that really goes with working together to address these uh, these risks. And I think in terms of collaboration by governments and the private sector, I think there's an opportunity to, to balance short and long-term views of risk a little bit better. And I also think allocating risks more meaningfully to whomever is best suited to manage them. I think that's another area. Um, and more agile regulations that properly embrace resilience, whether it's in trade, education, effective um, stimulus mechanisms, and of course, data. So more effective data sharing mechanisms because we are in this together and we need to be a little bit more open in terms of, of sharing data. And, you know, specific examples on how collaboration could work uh, is, for example, closing key gaps in financing governance and implementation of um, measures for preparedness for both emerging and well-established risks, but like food insecurity, which is a big topic now, right? Or uh, this stressed out healthcare systems, or cyber, for example, addressing the insurance gap related to cyber generally or cyber warfare. So there are, there are a lot of different examples uh, that I can think of. I think that's really what it's all about, thinking differently about risks, how they are interconnected, how they can suddenly accelerate, uh, what their impact could be on values, economies and communities, and what the options are uh, in terms of response, but to do it in a collaborative way. It kind of, I mean, it kind of goes against human nature, doesn't it? Because um, you mentioned time quite a lot and, you know, what's present, what's future. And the report itself, I know, separates urgent from near term to longer term risks over a kind of between sort of there's a two year uh, foresight, there's, there's the 10 year trajectory. Do you think we need to really battle human nature and think about all of these risks, even if it's a 10 year time frame that we're talking about that really need to be dealt with now simultaneously? And I agree with you, it goes against human nature because we're so trained or so defaulted to look at what is right in front of us. And just look at the fact that infectious diseases fell off the, the top rankings of this year's report. I mean, I don't think that would come as shock to anyone that we're not out of the woods yet and there might be another pandemic on the horizon. And, and even though we manage at the end to navigate COVID-19 well, I, I don't know if I should say reasonably well, but anyway, here we are. We're still alive. <laughs> but there are so many lessons learned and there are so many things that we could have done better. So uh, absolutely, I think there is, you know, this constant conflict between focusing on the short term and the long term. But we just need to get better at doing both. Question to Peter. Um, Carolina, you, you mentioned earlier that the word polycrisis, um, which, which comes out in the report. Do you think we are in a new era of volatility and cascading crises? Uh, and and uh, can you explain what, what you mean by polycrisis? First of all, it seems to be the time where we invent the world for everything we haven't seen. Uh, and may, maybe the perception is a bit flawed because more likely we're coming out of an area of almost unnatural stability that we saw for maybe 15, 20 years. Because if you look at human history, what we experience today seems not so out of the norm when uh, basically stability is something that was not observed in history for very long periods of time. Having said that, I mean, we've built the world that, that produced a lot of wealth for a lot of people through connecting, through trade, through openness. And now all in a sudden we realize that 
the foundation for all of that wasn't strong enough to really secure the benefits that we, we thought we had. And, and we're confronted with the fact that we may lose some of the benefits that globalization has produced over the last 20 years. And obviously that will have an impact on general wealth levels. So uh, I think, yes, the era that we've gone through was quite stable. I think the outlook is probably less stable. Every generation thinks they're experiencing the worst headwinds in history. I think that's also very human. Uh, but then at the end of the day, what it takes is trust into the future. I mean, in the dark ages, people have built churches over generations. How have they done that? And, and why can we, that we think we're culturally so advanced, not come together in a project that takes us 25 years? So that's just a generation. We're not talking 50 or 100 years. Uh, but still, it takes the trust into the future and, and the sense of the common good. Uh, as well. Part of the issue is the, 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 the very far advanced individualization, mostly of Western societies, where the individual good is much worth a, a lot more than the common good. And, and to an extent, that's part of the challenge we're looking at. We need to come back to a perception where the common good has a value as well, uh, and not only the individual well-being. And just uh, re returning to Carolina, you, you did touch on this a little bit earlier, but given the interconnectedness of risks, which is somehow kind of more obvious than ever now, uh, how should we be changing the way we approach global risks in a kind of broad sense? Yeah, great question. And I, I really believe that focus on uh, improved resilience is the answer uh, to these you know, very interlinked geopolitical, geoeconomic, societal crises that we're facing. And I think, you know, Peter talked about the concept of polycrisis and what that means. And I think it really illuminates how global crises are interconnected, entwining and worsening one another. And I think it's helpful uh, to think about it in, in terms of guidance for how we should look at the world and what is coming at us on the risk horizon. And to effectively prepare for these global risks, we have to stop worrying that the required investments will be a drag on national or corporate growth. And we need to prioritize implementing a resilience mindset that runs deeply through everything, whether it's our boardrooms or supply chains or sustainability targets or you know, approach to worker health and, and well-being. And if we focus on strategies that position us well for longer-term risks and structural changes, I think we can reduce uncertainties and make better decisions about where to invest the limited resources that we have, but it will take uh, some creativity and it will take collaboration and, and collaborative thinking across public and private sectors and a willingness to cooperate across borders to be successful. And unfortunately, given where we are today in the world, it seems that we have more friction than, than collaboration. So it's not a it's not a good moment in time in terms of you know, increased collaboration. But if we're able to do that, we will be so much better prepared for and able to respond to uh, both you know, today's compounding risks, but also coming polycrisis. And it will be with better agility and we will be better, better in a better position to create the more secure and, and a stable future, which I think everyone has an interest in. You mentioned health uh, as one of the things that did not make it into those uh, sort of top risks this year. 
which is is um, astounding. But um, is there anything else that that was missing? Yes, and you know, again, back to the fact that infectious disease uh, fell uh, so far down the rankings on, on long term risks. I, I think there is some complacency, uh, complacency setting in, and I, I think we have to realize now infectious disease could really arise from failure to mitigate climate change. And that is something that we're definitely looking at, right? So, and that ranked as a top 10 risk for sure. It's like dominating both short and long-term uh, the, the outlooks. So, and also I think we need to, to connect this a little bit to um, a health crisis that could potentially arise out of an interstate conflict. Because if a disease is weaponized, then we're looking at a completely different landscape, right? So uh, it just goes to show how interconnected risks are. Um, but I think uh, what else am I surprised didn't make the list? I think probably we should be a little bit more concerned about employment crisis. Uh, we've seen uh, the stresses that rapid uh, social transformation and, and those unexpected crises can have on employment and, and employability. And as we continue to digitize our economies and automate workplaces and processes and move towards more of service economies, I think it would be really crucial that opportunities for work, you know, upskilling required education, that that remains available and that we have livable wages and benefits um, and that there are no race or gender or other barriers to employment. Because failing to do that could, again, bring us into this negative spiraling loop of social unrest, deeper polarization and really a weakening of, of resilience capabilities. So I, I think probably employment crisis would be another one that I would mention. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think there's anything missing, Peter? Well, I think one of the things that is a concern is the fact that we're looking at the composition of factors that we haven't seen before. We see high inflation with low unemployment. Uh, and again, it's totally unclear whether the policies make sense because the policies are derived from past experience, but we haven't looked at the situation like that, really. Uh, and so I think 2023 will be a very interesting ride and I'm not sure people are sufficiently aware of the risks of the uncertainty be because we're confronted with something we haven't seen before. Do you feel that there's something to be optimistic about for this coming year? <laughs> well, at, at the end, I think the, the optimism always comes from the opportunity. And I think decarbonization is the next industrial revolution. And, and I said that before. And every industrial revolution has made the world a better place. So why would this one be different? Uh, I think it's the lack of optimism and the lack of, of resilience at the individual level in terms of adapting to change that is holding us back in, in like venturing into that future. Now, we will have to get there anyways. But it seems if, if I take today's mentality 100, 150 years back, I think we would still ride horse carriages. Uh, and we shouldn't forget hay was the most important fuel for the economy at one stage. And it has changed and it will change again. So I think that's that's my source of optimism. And Carolina, any, anything, anything to be positive to be optimistic about? about. <laughs> You know, I, I think about it from the business perspective, and I have to say there are so many opportunities that can be captured uh, with the right focus on resilience, with empowering your uh, employees, leaders to make quick decisions when unexpected things happen, when looking at improving and increasing diversity around the table 
when looking at your risk outlook to make sure that you capture everything that is moving on the horizon and, and really work through uh, from moving from maybe more static risk management and risk mitigation to more of a strategic view, integrating risk with uh, strategy, because that way you can really align your strategies with the direction of change and capture opportunities that comes with it. And I think that is something to be very, very optimistic about. The risk report we launch every January and it sort of sets the tone for Davos for the annual meeting. What what are you, Carolina, if you go first, um, what are, what are you hoping to get out of the annual meeting and, and how do you hope it will sort of help set the agenda for the year ahead? Mm. No, we're, we're facing numerous interlinked crises uh, and dealing with so many challenges. And, and my hope is really that we can move maybe from the friction that has been caused by you know, recent geopolitical turbulence and, and really move towards more of a collaborative uh, mindset in terms of how to address these short term, but, but definitely the long, longer term risks where really there's very limited opportunity to do something individually about it. We need to come together uh, to solve these uh, challenges that we're facing. So improved collaboration, that would be my hope. And Peter? Well, I think Carolina talked quite a bit about resilience. I think individual and collective resilience is a very important ingredient to master what's ahead of us. Uh, and, and I would really hope that people see, I mean, every risk is an opportunity. Uh, if the world's perfectly stable, nothing will ever grow. Uh, so from a business perspective, a, a relatively volatile environment offers much more opportunity. That's the positive thing. And, and risk is not necessarily something bad if properly managed. And so finding the right balance in, in kind of building resilience, mitigating risks, but also tolerating risks as a business opportunity, uh, based on that individual and collective resilience, I think can help the world moving forward. Now, part of that is a collective understanding. It's the collaboration that, that Carolina mentioned is kind of coll if collectively people accept that as a way forward. I think it will lead to much better outcomes than if we try to do that individually all on our own. Is there anything else that you'd want to say about the report? Anything that we haven't touched on? The one thing that I could just uh, point out is the fact that widespread cybercrime and cyber insecurity made its way into the top uh, rankings again, both in the short and long term view of risk. And I really, I mean, I cannot highlight enough the importance of keeping an eye on these aggressive and sophisticated cyber attacks because it is a persistent threat and it's also a strong driver of other risks. So, and of course, one of the reasons is that we have more exposure entry points than ever given uh, the speed of digitization and how we automate processes and, and so on and so forth. So, but also because advances in technology are allowing for the collection of more sensitive data. I mean, now we're looking at, you know, keystrokes and vocal inflections and facial expressions and other biometrics, and that opens up a completely new uh, field uh, where that kind of data could be the target of both geopolitical and commercial warfare. So I, I just want to like cyber, let's, let's not forget about cyber. <laughs> and, and Peter, any, any further, any final thoughts? As a risk officer, I'm always concerned about the things I don't think about. For every reader of the report, they should consider kind of what is not in there that's relevant for them. 
because you read the report, it makes perfect sense. It's very easy to kind of rush to conclusions without considering your specific situation. And, and that's probably what I would recommend everyone reading it. Think about the things that are not obvious, uh, because if you're unprepared, kind of risks typically are worse if they materialize. There is that saying, that if you're worrying about something, you probably don't need to worry about it. <laughs> and if you're not, you probably do. Gail Markovitz was speaking with Carolina Clint, Managing Director at Marsh, and Peter Geiger, Group Chief Risk Officer at Zurich Insurance Group. You can find the Global Risks Report at wef.ch slash grr2023, and you can follow all the action at Davos at wef.ch slash wef23, and by subscribing to this podcast, Radio Davos, which will be going daily during the event. And don't miss our sister podcast, Meet the Leader. Find that and the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast on your podcast app and at weft.ch slash podcasts. And join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with reporting by Gail Markovitz. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back very soon, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>